The Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, bringing you the best GPS mapping software directly to your smartphone or desktop. Onyx offers you the ability to see property boundaries, mark waypoints, track your location, and so much more. Visit onyxmaps.com or you can download it directly from your app store today. Save 20% off of your purchase by using the code NATION20 at checkout. That's capital N NATION followed by the number 20. XP podcast with your host Steve Fielder and me Chris Powell. If you're ready to up your game to extreme performance, sit back, buckle up, and hang on for another exciting episode of Houndsman XP. episode of the Houndsman XP podcast, it's Old Home Week. I travel home to Columbus, Indiana, and I sit down with a longtime friend. Gene Hopkins has served as the president of the Indiana Bowhunters Association. Uh, he's been heavily involved in the Indiana Deer Hunters Association. He has been, uh, he is currently the president of the Indiana Sportsman's Roundtable, which has about 40 organizations. And uh, he is a guy who has learned how to be an influencer when it comes to rules-making processes, uh, legislative issues, and also on how to sustain a, a, uh, an organization that can be effective on that bigger stage. I hear guys in our, our lifestyle, our, our, our community here, our hound hunting community all the time that say things like, you know, those deer hunters get whatever they want. Well, that's not entirely true, but this episode is going to focus on how we can build a successful organization and how we can be positive and effective influencers on that bigger stage when we have to fight for our rights to free cast, free cast hounds, uh, when we're trying to protect our lifestyle and how we can preserve this lifestyle well into the future. We don't go to people that don't know how to do that in order to figure it out. We go to people that have been successful, and Gene is no exception to that. When uh, he calls the governor's office, the governor takes his call, and we need to figure out how he's doing that if we're going to be effective and we're going to preserve this lifestyle for the future. So you're really going to enjoy this. Um, it shows everybody that deer hunters and the hound hunting community have to stop being divided we have to learn how to work together. We got to start building those relationships now. And we also have to come to the table with a willingness to learn how that is accomplished so that we can be effective in the future. So you are really going to enjoy this episode. Uh, Gene is well spoken. Uh, you're going to hear how long we've known each other. I really don't remember life where I didn't know Gene Hopkins. And uh, uh, he's, been a, he's a, been a mentor of mine for a number of years so he was very beneficial and a good good friend to houndsmen when we formulated the houndsman or the uh, who's your tree dog alliance here in indiana when jerry mall and i had that vision 
he kind of uh, took us under his wing and showed us how to move forward and how we can be effective influencers. So get out a pen and paper, take some notes for this one, folks. I'm telling you, if if you're struggling in your state or you think there's no hope on the horizon for you, for you or, or a houndsman lifestyle, take some notes, get ready to learn. This is a great podcast for that. Also, make sure that you are checking out W Hunting Supply. DUsupply.com is where you find W Hunting Supply. And if you go to the Join the Fight page, you'll find all of our logo wear. Uh, long sleeve t-shirts and decals. You've got window decals there too. Make sure you're rounding up that order for uh, anything that you need hound hunting related. If you need it for your hounds, W's got it. And you can't beat their customer service. So without any further delay, let's get into this podcast. Yeah, that's not out of the that's not out of question one of these days, I hope. Yeah. Could happen. So it could. <clears throat> well, how long have we known each other? Oh my gosh. You know, we were thinking about that in several conversations we've had over the last few years. I think the first time I met you was when you came to I had an, an archery business that I ran out of my mobile home up near Edinburgh. Yeah. And I think that was seventy nine eighty, somewhere yeah. in that ballpark. Mm-hmm. And I think you and your dad. Yeah. Your your stepdad came up and I think I had a archery shop in the front bedroom of the mobile home. Yeah. And I think that was the first time we met. Yep. It was a PSC phaser two. Yeah. Yeah. Boy that, was, that, that dates you. Yep. That's <laughs> the bow that I bought from you. And then Actually, we moved the store over on uh, 23rd and Cottage here in Columbus, and you you were still young, young, I don't know, teens, yeah. mid-teens, maybe. Oh, yeah. And then you and your stepdad and your brother would all come in quite often, and, you know, that was a place we would all hang out. It was a great place to hang out, outdoor <clears throat> specialties. Outdoor specialties, yeah, I started that. That was the name of the business, even when we were in the mobile home up there in Edinburgh, and then we moved down... <clears throat> Bought the building and opened it officially with a storefront with an employee and all that, right. you know, paid sales tax and made it legal. <laughs> <laughs> um, God, that had to be 1980, 81. Yeah. Yep. Dunaways, Monty and Jason. Yeah. Monty were came reg- in and regulars. Keith Huff. Yep. Uh, oh, just, yeah. Yeah. We had, man, that was, you know, it was just a, a social thing as much as it was a business thing. You know, we'd close the door, lock the door, and We'd still hang around for an hour, and everybody would just sit around and talk. And yeah, it was fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, and uh, it even became a cultural thing. You know, when when Jason and I got our driver's license, you know, that was still the place that that we came to town and mm-hmm. and came to hang out. Well, I know a lot of the kids. We were yeah within you know say ten blocks of North High School, and I would take off my lunch hour. And I would come down to the store and spend my lunch hour, and a lot of the kids from north would walk over and spend their lunch hours with us there in the shop. Yeah, yep. And it was a hunting shop. It was a it was a an archery. It was the archery shop, as far as I was concerned. You guys had good gear. I remember um, when the Golden Eagle came out. <laughs> yes, yes. And. Uh, um, those were beautiful bows, weren't they? Yeah, black. Have you got one hanging in here? No, I don't have. My my collection here is more of the, I key in more on the pre-1950. Right, right. And so 
we're with Gene Hopkins of the Indiana Sportsman's Roundtable, Indiana Bow Hunters Association, archery collector. I mean, you've got quite a resume, Gene. And, and uh, the reason we're sitting down and talking to you today is because we've had a long-standing relationship and, and you have been a really good friend to houndsmen over the years and hound hunting in the state of Indiana. Uh, when we started the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance here, then you were there to advise me and, and Jerry and our founding members. And you really taught us a lot about how to guide us through uh, formation, formulation of the, the organization, but also how to interact. So, um, and you were always a good friend while I was a conservation officer too. And I knew that you were always one of the good guys. So. <laughs> That's true. I, I, I don't have a, a criminal bone in my body. I couldn't, if I tried, do something against the law. I just couldn't look at myself. And I've always been that way, you know. So Yeah. Um, but, you know, going back, I guess, <clears throat> when we opened the store, I'll go back to the, you know, the beginnings. When we opened the store, when we officially opened the store there on Cottage, and we were doing pretty well, you know. this We were really the only game in town. There were other people around, but we, I think we were – one of the more respected shops around, and we knew what we were doing. You, know? you did. We, you know, I've you had shooting. premium. You had premium hunting yeah. gear for the day. You know, if that shop was open today, then the types of things to put it in perspective would be, um, you would have, if you could get it, you would be a dealer for for a high end clothing line. Yeah. Um, because it was a high end clothing line back then. Right. And that was World War II camo days. <laughs> yeah. Tree bark, uh, I remember when t- tree bark came in. and, and uh, That was big stuff. That was big stuff, man. You know, that was high tech. Yep. And then the uh, real tree came in and, you know, wow, this is, you know, you got to have this. But one of the things I always, you know, my partner was Dan Forster. And uh, Dan and I talked about this a lot. You know, if we're going to sell stuff, we got to be able to walk the talk. You know, mm-hmm. we're not going to sell something we don't believe in. We're not going to sell a pair of boots that we haven't worn. We're not going to sell a bow we haven't shot. We're going to know what we're talking about, right? So we're not here just to sell you stuff. We're here to educate you and and, hope you make the right decisions. Because, you know, if I just sell you a bow and you walk out the door and you're not happy, you're going to give up the sport. And, you know, I want you to stay in the sport. Right. And I look around. I see people all the time. They walk up to me on the street or see me in the restaurant and, hey, you sold me my first bow back, you know. Right. Well, I don't remember you, but, you know, thanks for remembering me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that was the the thing you always got when you went to outdoor specialties is you knew you were talking to somebody. It it wasn't a big box store. It was personalized. And you knew you were talking to people that that, uh, had experience and and, – that was always that yeah. was a that was a valuable commodity and something you guys I think that's what you know a lot of if if somebody really wanted to they could open a store like that today and with that same mindset you know I'm not here to make a million dollars I'm here to to uh you know make a decent living I'll I maybe I'll make enough money to pay for a hunter to a year but I want to I want to build a sport right I want to build uh, disciples of the hunting or fishing or trapping, you know, and build people that are going to walk in our footsteps just like we walked in the footsteps of Dennis James and some of the people before us. Right, right. Yep, no doubt. And as we sit here in your room, and I'll describe this room for our listeners, it is uh, it would rival a an archery 
museum display. Most of the things are, are um, uh, in here are traditional archery. There are bows hanging on the walls. There are mounted heads from archery hunts all across the United States. Every broad, any broadhead that you can think of that's pre-19. Yeah, you know, the, the, my, my passion is the pre-1950 stuff. Um, my broadhead collection really is pre-1970, 75. Um, I don't get a lot of the replaceable blade broadheads because, they're, you know, they're just machine-made. And mm-hmm. um, My bows, though, I really focus in on, I don't even focus in on the recurves. Even recurves were made by a machine. You know, they were glued up by hand, but, yeah, for the most part, they were made by a machine. But I look up here on the, you know, these wood bows that are on the wall up here. I've got 150 different pre-1950 wooden bows that were made by hand. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody with a spoke shave and a draw knife stood over a bench and, and made that bow. And you can, in my mind, and, you know, I'm one of those guys that can walk through a plowed cornfield and pick up a stone arrowhead. And I think about the guy that made that right. 10,000 years ago. You know, I can smell the sweat of the bowyer when I pick up that bow off that rack. And that's the personal touch or the personal, I guess, relationship I feel with those those items like that. That's what really excites me. Right. And uh, another thing that we were talking about before we started recording was was the memorabilia you have here from Ann Marston, who was uh, Miss Michigan and also an archer. Yeah, Miss Michigan, 1960, Ann Marston, um, Archery Hall of Fame member, came came from England. You know, in 1949, she and her family left England and came over here. And I've got a wooden box here I was showing you earlier. That's a It's a luggage box. She came all the way across the ocean on an ocean liner with a box that's maybe, I don't know, two and a half foot by two foot by... 20 inches tall. Right. Everything she owned was in that box. Right. In 1949, and she comes over here, and she starts her new life. And, you know, she had shot a little bit over in England, and she was a pretty good competitor. And she comes over here, and her father gets into working with some of the bowyers up in the Detroit area. And she started winning a lot of tournaments. And she just, you know, at 13 years old, was beating everybody. Yeah. And she's a very attractive lady, and she, you know, as she grows up she starts getting invitations to shoot her bow and arrow on you know the art link letter show and the ed sullivan show yeah she's getting some really great publicity for the sport Mm -hmm. and she wins miss michigan in 1960 well cooler than that as miss michigan she gets to to, (laughs) she gets to go to the miss america contest right and in miss america contest or the talent competition she shoots a bow and arrow and she wins the talent competition in <laughs> Miss America 1960, shooting her bow and arrow. And yeah. unfortunately, she uh, suffered from diabetes. And, you know, in those days, insulin was really unknown. And she died 32 years old in the early 70s. Can you imagine the impact she could have had on on archery? Yeah. Because she, yeah. she would more than likely still be alive today. Right. And yeah. That era, there were some... We, you know, we talk about participation and we need to get more um, diversity into the sport. We need to bring more uh, 
women into the sport. We need to bring more different people, you know, not just old white guys like you and me into the sport. But if you go back in the 30s and you go back in the 40s and 50s and you look, there were a lot of ladies that were shooting and hunting Mm -hmm. with a bow and arrow. You know, Ann Hoyt, Babe Bitsenberger, Ann Marston, Ann Clark. And they were they were big names. Yeah. And then, you know, we trailed off. And now I think it's really cool when you go to a shoot or you even go to a hunt now, you see a lot of ladies. Right. And it's one of the fastest, if not the fastest growing constituencies in the in the sport of hunting is the ladies. I agree. And that and I told you the story about, you know, our our team member, Lauren Verani you know, comes into the sport at 29 years old, 27 years old, late 20s, whatever it is, uh, adopted the dog, and then said, hey, you know, this dog's treating squirrels. i got to figure out why this dog's treating squirrels and get involved. And she's totally immersed into that. But the the reason I want to set stage for, you know, our audience of where we're sitting is because the last few weeks – we have been trying to make a transition with Houndsman XP. Um, in the early episodes, we would refer to to what we do as a sport. Uh, as I sit here in your man cave, archery collection, museum display, whatever we want to call it here, Gene, you know, this is more than a sport to you. This this type of thing <laughs> that you're, you've got going on here is a lifestyle. As long as I've known you, it's been your lifestyle. Um, as I look at your mounts in here, I see a mountain lion that was, was uh, taken in Idaho with hounds. Uh, is that a Shiras moose back there? No, that's uh, Alberta, Canada. Alberta, Canada so moose. Canada moose. Uh, you know, just just uh, you've traveled, you've you've sacrificed, you've mastered your craft, and you made it a focal point for your life. Um, a big part of your life is this lifestyle of archery that you've chosen. I totally agree with that. It's not a sport. You know, a sport's something that I do on a Sunday afternoon. You know, I played softball. I loved softball. That mm-hmm. was a sport. And I broke my leg and I couldn't play anymore. Okay, no big deal. You know, I'll find another sport. You know, this is not a sport. This is a lifestyle. I've done this. I, I honestly cannot remember the first time I shot a bow and arrow. And that's not just making something up. I, right. I You know, I had a bear recurve. I can remember shooting that bear recurve, you know, when I was five and six years old, but I had it before then. Yeah. I can remember my mom, believe it or not, it was my mom got me into hunting. Is that right? Yeah. My father grew up in the coal mines of Kentucky, right? Southeast Kentucky. He was born in 1932, the Depression. There wasn't anything left in those mountains to hunt. If you wanted to hunt, everybody else had already killed it and ate it because everybody was starving right. to death, right? And you couldn't afford ammunition if you had a firearm. So he didn't have a lifestyle of the outdoors. His lifestyle was survival, right? Yeah. But mom, she grew up over in Decatur County, and, and uh, <clears throat> she was the one that got me into hunting. And I remember one, one, gosh, I had to be five, maybe no more than six years old. I got up one morning, went in and sat on the sofa, and well, there's something under the cushion here. Mm-hmm. And I lifted the cushion, and she had bought me an Ithaca Model 49 single-shot 22 lever action. And she'd put it under there, knowing that I would come in and sit on that couch that morning. Mm-hmm. And that was her way of surprising me with that Ithaca Model 4922, which I still have. <laughs> <coughs> I had to be no more than five or six years old, you know. 
And I can't believe you've still got the rifle. You know, you're not nostalgic or anything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How many broadheads have you got? Do you know? I know I have probably 200 bows. Okay. Um, broadheads, probably about 2,500. Uh, my arrow collection over here, these these arrows are, you know, if you're into the sport of archery and bow hunting, there's, there's arrows that are just... Uh, there's Saxton Pope's arrows up right. there. The, there's some Art Young arrows that Art, um, the blood is still on there from when he killed a grizzly bear in Yellowstone Park in 1923, which wow. was, he had special permission to go in there and hunt grizzlies mm-hmm. to uh, take some grizzly specimens back and to be mounted. And some of those grizzlies are in the Chicago Field Museum. Yeah. Those mounts are still there. Well, there's an arrow up there that's got the blood on it from mm-hmm. one of the grizzly hunts. Yep. And these arrows are in these cases, and they're categorized, they're labeled. Yeah. It's impressive. So, I mean, to say that that this is a hobby or a sport for you is, is understated. Yeah. Yeah. It is. You know, lifestyle is the only <laughs> word that, you know, it's, it's, I think that's one reason we feel, you know, when people attack us for Second Amendment or they attack us because we hunt or they don't understand why we do what we do, we become so passionate because you're not attacking a sport. You're attacking our lifestyle, right? And you know, you you want to you want to, you know, tell me that the Indianapolis Colts are not a good ba- uh, football team, okay? Well, you know, but you want to tell me that I can't hunt? We're going to have a different discussion, right? So right. attacking my lifestyle is not going to it's not going to go over very well. Now, you know, I work you know I work in a French owned company, and I've been there now for 38 years. It used to be the old Arvin, now it's mm-hmm. Faresia. So I have, I have a lot I'm of... I'm glad you pronounced that because I was going to butcher it. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of Europeans. I have a lot of Chinese. I have a lot of Indian uh, people come over here. And, you know, we always, because I can't talk. I can't have a conversation at dinner without talking about hunting or fishing or trapping or something, right? Mm-hmm. And they're, most of the time the conversation starts off like, I don't get it. You Americans and your guns. You know, I don't understand you guys. Why is it so important to you? And then I get into that, you know, the 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 culture, the lifestyle, conversation. You know, it's something that it's in us. It's genetic, mm-hmm. and we can't. You know, it's just who we are. Yeah. And I almost always invite them to go out with me to the range. Let's go. You've never you've never held a, a firearm in your hands in your life. Let's go to the range tomorrow evening. I'll bring something and. I'll bring the ammunition, and we'll go to the range just down the road here, and we'll shoot. Mm-hmm. And I have yet to have one of them say that they didn't have a fantastic time. Right. They they walk away saying, I get it. I understand. This is fun. Yeah. Yeah. And th- that's one of the things. That's that's one of the things that we get to benefit from here in the United States. No, we take it for granted. But, you know, I travel the world. And I get, you know, I've been in every continent except Antarctica. When are you going there? <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> but I get to see what other people, ha- you know, how they live and, and the lifestyles they have. Mm-hmm. And I tell you what, we're so fortunate. You know, I, I try to tell my my boys <clears throat> when they start to talk, you know, about, you know, I don't like this or I don't like that about our country. I said, well, you know, next time I go to Brazil or next time I go to India, you know, why don't you go with me, and right. you'll come back, and you'll have a different tune. Yeah. So taking that into taking that into account, okay, um, we are fortunate, but 
your lifestyle has also extended into being very proactive and invested in hunting and fishing, rules-making processes. Uh, you're an influencer within the DNR. Um, you've you've taken over the role. Are you president of the Indiana Sportsman's Roundtable? Yeah, I have since uh, since Dick Mercier passed um, several years ago. Dick and some of the board members at that time asked me if I would take over when he got sick. Mm-hmm. And the reason I'm sitting down here and talking to you is because this past week I've gotten three requests from individuals across the United States, and that's not a lot, but three different states that are looking to build an organization for houndsmen in their states. Mm-hmm. And um, who better to come and talk to that I have direct access to than Gene Hopkins? Because you have been so active and you've seen so much and you know what it takes to be effective on those stages so i want to i want to talk about those things but let's let's slay a dragon right off the bat okay because i hear this from houndsmen and i hear this from bow hunters my unique position that i was in for almost 30 years as a conservation officer I got to see both sides of it, but let's slay this dragon that houndsmen and deer hunters cannot work together. Yeah. <laughs> well, as a lifeline bow hunter, and I do a lot of hound hunting, right? My uncle, um, Dale, my, one of my mom's brothers, took me coon hunting, squirrel hunting. You know, he was he was huge into hounds. Mm-hmm. Um, this was 60s, 70s. Um, he would carry me on his shoulders, you know, we'd go out and hunt coons all night long, or we'd go out in the daytime and, and run squirrels with his dogs. Um, but my passion has always been bow and arrow. Mm -hmm. So I've been on that side where I go to meetings, you know, I go to the Indiana Bow Hunters Association annual meeting and we talk about, what are going to be our policies for the year? What's going to be our strategy? What do we want to do legislatively? What do we want to do in the DNR rulemaking process? And I can't tell you how many times somebody has brought up that we've got to do something about these hound guys. You know, they're running their dogs right in the middle of the rut. I'm sitting there, you know, I got this property. It's a sweet piece of property. I've been patterning this really nice buck for the last two months. And the rut starts, and I wait for the right wind, and I go to my stand, and dick gummit, there's, you know, a, a coonhound running through the field. Or there's tracks where, you know, I've seen that the that uh, they've been through here the night before coon hunting. And we've got to do something about that. Mm-hmm. We've got to stop that. So <clears throat> my philosophy has always been in what I do at work and what I do in my lifestyle you know of hunting is you know there's two sides to every story let's go back and let's see what the reality of this is and i think you sent me gosh it's maybe 10 years ago now Mm -hmm. you sent me a study i think out of maybe georgia north carolina north carolina Mm -hmm. where they you know the university down there had actually done uh studies on the impact of hound hunting interacting with deer hunters and they found that it really wasn't any impact it's right? negligible it's it was, almost immeasurable it's yeah 
And so when you know, let's let's instead of fighting with emotion, let's fight with facts. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a very I'm a, I work with computers. That's what I do in my you know to make my money to go hunting. I work with computers, and I've done that since the '70s. <coughs> Back when so, there were great big computers. Oh no, I, I yeah mainframes. <laughs> I wrote my first programs on punch cards. You know, <laughs> so <laughs> um, but. So my mind, you know, people think I'm weird. My wife thinks I'm weird. But, you know, I'm a fact and data-driven guy. You know, you can bring emotion to me, and I don't get it. But if I can translate that into uh, scientific data, I can translate that into facts and data. Um, There's always two sides to every story. Mm -hmm. I want to listen to your side. Now, I can speak more intelligently. We can have a more honest debate. And I can ask questions, and I can probe deeper into what you, you what you want to think, you know. And I'm a hound hunter, I, you know. I'm not hurting your deer hunting. Yeah, you're right. You know, I, I get it. Yeah. And so we well, can have those conversations, and we can cool the, cool the emotions down. And to and to prove this point to everybody, in when we started the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance, one of the first things that we worked with you on was expanding the hound running season you know the the taking season for raccoons in the state of indiana goes from november 8th to january 31st Um, at that time the running season was actually shut down it had had bumped back a little bit but at that time it it was closed until the 15th of february and then it went out um october more jog my memory here but i was thinking it was october 1st may have been 15th but we actually worked together uh, the indiana sportsman's roundtable the indiana bow hunters association the indiana deer hunters association all the all the stakeholders the trappers we all came together and said what's what's the reason for for restricting this use if it doesn't have that biological impact that we've been told that it has and all the stakeholders came together and hammered out a hammered out an agreement Mm -hmm. that the dnr so i just wanted to validate that that you know you do work for sportsmen in general you're not um with the indiana sportsman roundtable you represent how many groups? How many oh, groups? Yeah, we have now probably thirty to forty different groups from trappers to to fly fishermen to the houndsmen to the bow hunters, the deer hunters, the rough grouse, the turkey, pheasants. You know, it's yeah. a it's a good coalition yeah. of people, and you know, we can take an issue and we can start to talk about an issue from all different angles. And because you've got all these people around the table, you know, the sportsman's round table. Right. We're all sitting around the round table, and we're all talking face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball, and we're looking at each other. And sometimes we can get, you know, a little frustrated with each other. But, you know, as long as we can keep it fact and, dra- fact and data-driven and, we, you know, let's park the emotions. Let's go for a walk. You know, let's come back after we walk for a minute. Right, right. And, and uh, we can usually, almost every time, come to a, a consensus that, uh, you know what, we can we can work together. Yeah. I really believe that. I, I believe that with every issue we've got. I believe that with even the animal rights issue, you know, I'll use that example. When we hunted Brown County State Park over here for the first time in 93 or 94. Uh, Detailed you know, work there, going to have massive protests. Oh, yeah, they were going to block the roads. The animal yep. rights people were going to block the roads with dump trucks so the hunters couldn't get to the to the deer hunt there at Brown County Park. <coughs> and so the morning of the hunt, 
the animal rights people had a big protest on one side of the road, and we as the sportsmen set up a counter-protest on the other side of the road, right? Leading and, we were into in the the, and we were in the middle. You as conservation <laughs> officer were there in case, uh, <laughs> in case things got out of hand. Well, we had press coming in from all over. We had TV trucks coming, and we had radio people there, and we had newspaper people there, and it was a big deal, right? But what I think's the the moral of the story here, <clears throat> after the newspapers had left, the TV trucks had all left, there's all the animal rights people over here now. They're just kind of, you know, sitting in a circle over there. And I went over, and I sat right in the middle of the circle with them because I genuinely, I'm not doing this as a stunt, I want to know what you're thinking. I want to know why you're opposed to this hunt. Have you looked in this park? Have you walked this park? You can look across this park and you can see eight to nine feet high. You can see all the way across this park mm -hmm. because the deer have eaten everything that they can reach even standing on their hind feet. Yeah, that park actually looked like somebody going in there with hedge trimmers yeah. and trimmed everything <laughs> out up, uh, on the trees up to that height. And then everything on the ground looked like it had been bombed with Roundup. And, I mean, and can all, you imagine, can you imagine all the critters that aren't as tall as a deer? You right. know, what are they living on? How are they eating? The deer, they're stunted. They're, they look like collie dogs, you yep. know? Yep. And I want to understand why you guys think that we as humans shouldn't be controlling, shouldn't be managing. I believe that's why we're here. I believe right. exactly that's why we're here. We're, we're here to manage what God gave us and, you know, fulfill a role and to sit back and let nature starve itself to death out there is not that's not good stewardship yeah so i'm sitting here with you and i want to know exactly what you're thinking and they you know they the only thing they could come up with was the emotional arguments you know they hate to see a deer die well you would hate to see a deer die what if the whole deer population dies you know so <clears throat> one uh, thing one thing that i think escapes the people that are not aware that think with emotion there is no glorious death. Mother in Nature the wild. doesn't have hospitals, hospice. There is no glorious death. Uh, an animal's going to die of old age, yep. which means its teeth are going to be gone. Uh, it's going to starve to death. Yep. It's going to be killed or ripped apart by a more dominant, uh, either an alpha, uh, an apex predator, or even among apex predators, you know, another apex predator is going to kill it. Mm -hmm. um, so there is no glorious death. There's no Disney World death out there no. in for in nature. No. Well, I looked over at some of these, you know, they're starting to, their eyes are starting to get a little, okay, well, I'm going to listen to this old guy here and see what he's got to say. So I looked at him and I said, you guys are all probably in, in some kind of conservation or environmental programs, you know, or at least you're, you're uh, taking some classes and all this. And I said, do you ever read anything by Aldo Leopold? Well, of course we do. He's, you know, the father of conservation. I said, Sand County Almanac. Have you ever read the Sand County Almanac? Well, I don't know that I've read that one. I said, go back and read that one. Mm -hmm. And in that book, there's one line where he says his greatest fear. He wrote that book in 1949. He said his greatest fear is that someday people will think their meat came from the freezer and their heat came from the furnace. And I think that's exactly what you guys need to think about. You know, you go home tonight and you open the refrigerator up and you get out a hamburger or a hot dog or whatever you're going to have for dinner tonight. You don't think that that was an animal that just died, right? You think that thing came wrapped in plastic right. and grew out of the ground, right? That's not the way it works. And every time you leave the, the lights on, when you when you leave your house, a, dug a, a, a chunk of coal got dug out of the ground. Mm -hmm. That's what Leopold's trying to tell you guys. And then I said, you know, Leopold was a bow hunter. 
No, he was. Yeah, he was. Yeah. Would you like to go to my house? Right over there is Aldo Leopold's hunting equipment, his bow hunting equipment. And he was a bow hunter until the day he died in 1949, the father of conservation. The guy you guys are saying that you, you know, you're holding up as this example of he was a bow hunter. Yeah, yeah. And and I think it takes – we want to come back to that because I've actually got some things that we had discussed we wanted to talk about. Um, and we're going to come back and retrace a lot of these steps that we've already talked about. So it's often been said that the hunting community is about 10 years behind the trend, trend on being plugged in, influencers, you know, things like that, um, being effective – effective influencers um we we are still learning how to communicate effectively and hold on to the lifestyle and it's every day we learn something new you know now it's social media platforms uh i remember when the internet and now i'm going to date myself and you too but i remember when the internet came out and there were message boards you know, there had to be a learning curve there about how we represent ourselves as a hunting community <laughs> on the Internet. And now we're going through those same growing pains again with social media, how we re- how we represent our lifestyle. Um, so I want to circle back to all that, but getting right down to the nuts and bolts of it. As a person who has some experience in starting a hound organization and um, coming to a person who has been involved in in making sure organiz- either starting organizations or making sure those organizations were effective voices for your constituents over the years. One of the things that um, we need to have a we have to have a starting point somewhere for people to get organized what have you seen in your experience startup organizations what are the things that have made them successful and what are some some things that here today gone tomorrow type things well i think you know the number one thing is you got to have a vision um you know what do we want to do what are we trying to do you can call that a strategy but i call it a vision Mm -hmm. um when you know early early back I joined the Indiana Bow Hunters in 1970 and then I became involved and I became uh active 80 ballpark mm-hmm. and I thought you know then I became an officer and I thought you know what we've got to grow this organization um as big as we can grow it as fast as we can grow it and that was my vision well, my my vision was only partly right you know numbers did make a difference and and they do make a difference they still make a difference if i go into the legislature or i go into the governor's office and i say i'm president of the indiana sportsman's roundtable and we represent three different conservation clubs in the state of indiana with a total membership of 75 people he's going to go why are you even here yeah. but if i walk in there and say i'm president of the indiana sportsman's roundtable and i represent you know 40 50 different conservation clubs and state organizations across the state of indiana which accumulated memberships of 75,000 mhm oh would you have a seat yeah. that that's that's <laughs> you you're you're having uh, uh 
an impact at that point, right? You're relevant. Uh, so my vision of, of growing the organization was partly correct because I was building relevancy. Mm-hmm. I was building that base to a point where I could walk in and have that relevancy because I had numbers. But what I missed back then in my early days was that of those, you know, we got to 2,000 members in the Indiana Bowhunters Association. It was pretty good, you know, for a state bowhunting organization. That was one of the biggest in the country. Right. What I missed and I didn't understand was quality of the people and and the leadership of the people that I need to be getting involved, right? So it's human nature. You're going to have a certain number of people who are going to be leaders and a certain number of people are going to be followers. And that's, you know, you can teach communication and you can go to leadership classes, but, you know, genetically there are a certain number of people that just have leadership programmed into the the way they were born. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I missed the fact that I needed to go out and recruit quality leaders. I needed people that I could help build a vision with. And then we could share that vision and we could go out and spread the word. Um, Just having numbers was only half. So now, you know, let's go out and let's recruit, let's find, (laughs) let's build a a team of core people. Maybe across the state of Indiana, it's only 10 people. Out of 2,000 members that are really, truly going to help lead mm-hmm. the future, the vision, and keep that vision evergreen. You know, five years from now, our vision may be different. That's what I missed. And that's, you know, as I work today, I'm looking not just for numbers. I'm looking for people who can be part of that leadership. Mm-hmm. So what are some characteristics and people that you look for that are going to be in that circle of influence for you? I've seen this so many times. I've seen so many clubs across the country uh, that thought when they were finally the, the light bulb went off that we've got to build a core team of leaders. We, we need to build numbers, but we need a core team of leaders. And the first thing they gravitate to is the big names. You know, like I need this person because he writes for this magazine, and I need this person because he's got a high profile. And almost every time that fails. Why do you think that is? Why? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, because you can write a magazine article doesn't mean you're a leader. A lot of magazine writers write great articles, but they're, you know, some of them are even introverts. They're not leaders. Those people also have a lot on their plate. I was just getting ready to say that. And, you know, the old saying, if you want something done, give it to a busy person is, that's somewhat true. But when you look around and you look at, you know, I'll pick, um, the one of the organizations I look at right now that uh, across the country and here in Indiana, too, is really making some waves, really doing some good things, mm-hmm. is the backcountry hunters and anglers. Here in Indiana, they've got a core team of leaders that they've, they've recruited who are able to go out and communicate and, and have a personality and can stand in front of a, a group, whether it be a legislative group or it just be a, a group of potential members mm-hmm. and be able to communicate a vision and, and tell a story and, you know, have that charisma about them you know it's a you can you can tell when a leader walks in the room you Mm -hmm. can tell it and that backcountry hunters and anglers group is really doing that they've got you know they're they're young they're 30 probably average age is 30s 
Um, you, you know, it's not a bunch of old gray-haired guys in the room. Um, so they they seem to be getting that. They seem to be understanding that I need to build my numbers, but I'm not going to be able to sustain my numbers if I don't have leaders leading those numbers. Mm-hmm. I, it's easy to build something. It's hard to sustain something. That's a good point. That's a good point. And that's what we're looking for, sustainability. You know, and you mentioned backcountry hunters and anglers, and I know that I'm going to have people in, in my audience that are going to cringe when you say backcountry hunters and anglers because they're different. They're they're different in age. Mm-hmm. They're different in ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, the way they do things is not the status quo, the way it's always been done. Um, so it's a little bit it's a little bit intimidating, you know, because we are supposed to be the wise ones, the gray haired ones, the, the ones who have got all this experience. And now you've got these guys coming on the stage and getting things done. And so it's different. So it is intimidating. Um, you know, one of the things that, um, I've said about that is my son, was raised in my house, but he looks at the world different than I do. Um, he is going to be the future. So at this point in the game, we aren't going to have any influence if we shun them, if we don't get to know them, if we don't become involved in these younger organizations. For me, I just came back from the SHOT Show, and I said it in our last podcast or two podcasts ago. It was exciting. I even came out of there with a spark of hope. You know, there are every age group, every age demographic, every racial demographic, both genders represented. It was diverse and it was exciting. It gave me hope that shooting, hunting and outdoors lifestyle is going to go on in the future. I think you're exactly right. And I look at those organizations like that. Um, One of the things I'll give them credit for is, you know, BHA here in Indiana. They started... When they started, you know, they haven't even formed, They at that time, they hadn't even formed their state chapter yet. But they are already searching out the the more experienced people around the state mm-hmm. uh, to help them get started. So they came to me and they, they asked for my help. They said, would you help, you know, um, we're, we want to create bylaws. We want to, you know, learn from what you guys have done, good and bad. What, you know, did you do that was good and what did you do that was bad? <coughs> So they were doing the right things. They were searching out mentors, you know, and that that's a, that, I give them credit for that. Yeah. And, I, you know, I go back when I was 25 years old and I was getting, you know, first involved in, in the Indiana Boners Association and, and uh, the Indiana Deer Hunters Association and some of the other organizations that I was working with back then. I was that guy. Right. And right. now, you know, 40 years later, I'm the, the you know, the mentor. Yeah. But if we don't, you know, we're not going to be here forever. Sooner or later, we're going to wake up dead. <laughs> and there's going to be somebody taking our place. Right. And I hope that they, you know, they continue doing what they're doing. And, and I hope that they continue to get younger people and more diversity into our sports. And I hope they continue to search us out and ask for advice. But you know what? You may have a different idea, just as I did when I was 25 years old. Yeah. People said that about me. Yeah. That's right. You know, I'm sure Dennis James and some of them were thinking, 
Who the heck is, is this guy? What is Gene doing over there? <laughs> yeah. Man, he's taking us the wrong way. I just know it. That's not what I would do. That's uh-huh. yep. yep. You're exactly yep. right. Okay, so we've got we've got this uh, person that is in a state that doesn't have a hound organization. Um, the first thing is for them to find leaders. I think you can you start your vision. What do we want to do with this? What are we trying to do? Are we trying to be impactful? Uh, are we trying to um, build our sport? Are we trying to grow our sport? We're we trying to impact the legislature and the DNR policies. You know, put those things down and start to create a vision in your mind as to, you know, a lot of people. You know, again, back when I was 25 years old and just getting involved in this, a lot of people said all we want the IBA to be is we want to go have shoots and we want to sit around the campfire and, you know, talk about the hunts. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's great, but that's not what I think. Right. You know, what I think is that if we don't get involved and we don't (coughs) start making an impact in the legislature and if we don't start taking control of our future, we're not going to be here. As houndsmen, we share very unique needs when we make a decision to relocate especially when it comes to finding a hound-friendly environment in which to live. REMAX Hall of Fame realtor Evan Harrell is a houndsman himself, and he and his team understand your relocation needs as no one else can. With so many things to consider before you move, Evan can help you find just the right location anywhere in the country whenever you decide to go and will even help with the process of selling your present home. And Steve, REMAX Elite Realty is based in Franklin, North Carolina. Evan Harrell specializes in residential sales and especially in helping people like us to relocate to the locations we choose anywhere in the United States. REMAX has been the leader in residential transactions since 1999 and rated the number one brand in real estate. Evan has been named top producer four years in a row, and Chairman's Club recipient in 2018. Contact Evan online at evanherrell.com or give him a call at 828-371-5103. You and your hounds will be glad you did. Well, that's an interesting topic right there, Gene, because... That's kind of where houndsmen are, especially in the east. In the west, they seem to be uh, uh, at least they aren't into the competition hunting side of it. East of the Mississippi, competition hunting uh, is the king. So hound organizations want to have hunts. They want to go to the hunts. They want to they want to talk to the other club members, you know, over a cup of coffee in the clubhouse and things like that. And now, to prove my point, if hunters in general are 10 years behind, the houndsmen are 20 years behind the learning curve here. Because now they're starting to see things pop up about animal contests. You know, uh, there was a bill in New York last year. There's a bill in Maryland right now about uh, uh, pursuing game with with dogs where an animal may be killed. So it's going to start affecting their ability to to go to these competition hound events. And a, a night hunt is not a, a canned hunt behind high fences. It's a it's a, a wild hunt out there that that I would engage in any other night of the week that that I would you know fair chase the whole nine yards. But now we've got people that are starting. The light bulb is starting to come on 
they're starting to really whittle away at this thing. What are we going to do? So now here we are talking about it on the Houndsman XP podcast. So when we look at this thing, one of the things that we, we talked about is we need people. Obviously, you're not just involved in archery. You are invested. <laughs> here i can mm-hmm. see by looking mm-hmm. around this room you've you've invested your your thought in it you've invested your uh, money in it your mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. Uh, your creativity all these things so the people that are running our organizations do they need to be invested what what would you say to that yeah you know we <clears throat> wordsmithing is something i do a lot Mm-hmm. Uh, in my professional life, too, because I believe words are meant to have meaning. And you can take a word and you can change one word in a sentence and totally change the whole meaning of the sentence. So involved and invested, you know. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I was involved in the sport for many years and involved at a very high level. I did a lot of competition shooting. I did a lot of hunting with bow and arrow. Um, I, you know, I even did some recruiting and I did some, uh, bow hunter education. You know, I started the bow hunter education program here in Indiana back in the mid eighties. Um, but that involvement that I had doesn't compare to what I see now as investment. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and because I'm now seeing that I've got a bigger role, I've got a longer term, I've got something that I'm trying to get to. Um, not for me, but for my kids and my grandkids. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I, I met a guy a long time ago in the woods, walking around the woods, and he actually was a, a Native American. And you know, I walked into the woods with my young son, and we were squirrel hunting, and it was in Brown County on the hillsides. And there was a, a foggy morning, August morning, and I look up on the hillside and I see a Native American Indian, long braided hair. I think, you know, I'm, I'm dead. You know, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to the happy hunting grounds. And I look down at my son, and he sees him too. And I walk up there and introduce myself. And and he was a Native American, you know. He just moved into the area, and he was out for a walk. Mm -hmm. And uh, he turned out to be one of his tribe's spiritual leaders. And we got to know each other, and I got to spend a lot of time with him. And we talked about some some things, you know, about uh, life and philosophy and those kinds of things. A very religious guy. And... He said, you know, in, in our culture, we make decisions. We believe that a decision should be made not based upon what's best for you. It should be made best upon what's best for the seventh generation after you. Hmm. And I always remembered that, you know, and it's something that I take today. If I'm making a decision about, you know, should we or shouldn't we, I'm not thinking about me because I've had my run. You know, my run's been good. Look at, you know, what... Yeah. And this has been a good life. Right. I, I, I died tomorrow morning. I can look down and say I had a good life. Yeah, you lived a full life. I lived sure. a full life, and I've got very few regrets. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but my kids and my grandkids and my great-grandkids are not born yet. <clears throat> I want them to have the same opportunity, whether they choose to follow the path or not, their choice. But I want them to have that opportunity. If they right. want to go fishing, they want to go hunting, they want to go chase a hound— I love beagles when I was young. I love beagles. If they want to do those things, I want to make sure I've done everything in my power that those things are still here. Those opportunities are still here for them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I use that analogy there is the difference between involvement and uh, 
and um, investment. Investment. Yeah. I'm investing in the future, not just my future. It's it's been my finding that the person who is willing to be invested, the person who is willing to, you can find people. And I was trying to draw this analogy on my way up here. And, um, you know, church has been a very big part of my life and my family's life. And growing up in church, there were people that you saw on Sundays that were there. Uh, And then there were the people that you saw every Sunday. You saw them on Sunday night. You saw them on Wednesday. Mm -hmm. And at the church picnic, they were the ones that were serving the food. Yeah. And they were the ones that were teaching the Sunday school classes, serving on the boards. Those people were invested in that Mm -hmm. community. And tell us, tell us your, tell me your opinion on involvement worth versus investment there. Well, I think, again, I think the one thing we share with you know, your analogy there with the church is a good a good analogy, and I think a lot of people can relate to that analogy. Those people that were doing that, teaching Sunday school, do you think they were doing that for them? Yeah, they weren't teaching Sunday school for them. Mm-hmm. They, they've probably done what they, they can do already to punch their card, right? <laughs> <laughs> but they were making sure that they were building a future for the for the people they were teaching to and that's the investment they were making and i'm investing my time i don't get paid a nickel for anything i do uh, you know president of the indiana sportsman's roundtable past president of the indiana bow owners association uh legislative chairman for you know 25 or 30 years um i don't even get gas money i don't want it you know if you if you said here's you know, we're going to build a, a fund here for you to get gas money so you can run back and forth to mm-hmm. Indianapolis all the time. No, I don't want it because that makes it a job, and I don't want it to be a job. I want it to be a passion. I want it to be a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> that to me is, you know, investment. I'm investing because I have a purpose. My purpose is I look over at my grandkids every time they come over here, and my purpose, that's my purpose. Yeah. And that's why I'm <coughs> investing what I'm investing. I could walk away and not do any of those things and just go hunting mm-hmm. and but i can't do that i can't do that so we'll go back to the church analogy you've got the people that are invested what if what is there to invest in if you don't have people that are willing to be involved though you know i'll bear my soul here a little bit you know when when i worked jerry mall and and a few others and i worked on and it still exists today I know it exists within the Bow Hunters Association and different sporting organizations. We get frustrated with people that won't. They just want to be involved. They just want to be the person that shows up for the banquet or they just want to be. And and I had to pump the brakes a little bit. And, and probably through discussions with you, I realized that we need people that are willing to be involved? We need people at all levels, right? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, when we were talking earlier, um, if you take 100 people, there's going to be no more than two or three of those people that are really going to be genetically programmed to be a leader. Mm-hmm. The other 97 or 98 people are going to be really good followers. Yeah. We need both. So back when I was you know, talking earlier about 
my vision was only half correct, and I thought I had to build this big organization, but I forgot the part about the leaders, that I needed leaders, too. Mm-hmm. Um, we need them both. You can't be successful without both. Right. So don't think, don't try, don't force fit, thinking that I've got to have, um, i got to make everybody a leader. Not going to happen. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to run yourself crazy. You're going to think you failed when it's not your failure. You know, it's not everybody is going to be a leader. Right. They don't want to be. They can't be. They don't have the, you know, they don't have the vision or they're not programmed that way or whatever it is. But I still need them. I still absolutely need you as a member. Right. And that's the point I was trying to get to, you know. If if you care about the lifestyle that we're trying to live, then you have to be involved. You at, at some level you have to be involved. We talked about the the guy the mistake of going out and trying to get the big name. You may never get him to be that person who is a leader, but you better figure out a way to have him involved. If if all I can do, you know, so I I realized finally the the light bulb went on with me i can't get you as even though you may even be a good leader but you're already have so many axes in in um, being ground at the same time you can't do justice to another organization but can you support us would you support us would you be a member can i just use your name you know as as a you're an influencer Mm mm-hmm because of your name and your visibility, you know, can you just be a member of our organization? Can we claim you as a member? You know, you're going to influence a lot of other people to come join us just because your name's here. Yeah. And and that's one thing that we, we wanted to talk about, too, was that ability to be an effective influencer. Um, and so that was a perfect segue into into this concept of being an influencer. John Maxwell states that every person will influence at least 10,000 people in their lifetime on average. Even I think the he's most, being conservative. Yeah. That's the most uh, introverted person that you can find. Mm-hmm. He's going to influence people when he stands in the line at, gr- at the grocery store. Yep. He's going to make an influence on someone when, um, you know, he's standing there with, with uh, a whole cart full of groceries and, and there's a lady there with three kids and has a gallon of milk mm-hmm. and backs his cart out and says, go ahead. Mm-hmm. You know, at that point, he's become an influencer. So it's important that every person that is immersing themselves into the the outdoor lifestyle understands that they are an influencer and they are going to have an impact on the perception that people have of what they are doing. Yeah, you, you cannot deny that. That <clears throat> when when I, I take my grandchildren with me a lot because my life is my grandchildren. <clears throat> we go to the grocery store and and I see a cart in the parking lot. I'll walk. I may walk halfway across the parking lot to go get that cart and push it in, even though it's not my cart. And my grandkids, they'll look at me, and they, you know, they don't say a word. But they, but I'm doing that on purpose. I'm teaching them. I'm doing that deliberately to teach them, right, to influence them. So there's all those things that you're doing deliberately, consciously to influence people, but there's also a lot of things you're doing unconsciously that are influencing people. Mm-hmm. When I teach my bow hunter education classes, I talk to the students. I say uh, in the same spirit that 
every time you walk into the public in your hunting clothes, and I'll walk into public with my camo and wear it proudly. Mm-hmm. But every time you walk in public as, with camo on, you're influencing people, either good or bad. Think about it. If you walk out there and walk into the restaurant with blood dripping off of you, you've you've taken a deer and, and you feel dressed the deer and, you know, I'm hungry, I want to stop by, I'm going to go into the restaurant. Did you wash your hands? Did you take off your bloody pants and put on clean, you know, pair of, even camo? You're influencing somebody every time you do something, whether you like it or not, good or bad. Mm-hmm. Accept it. Use that to your advantage. I use that. I walk into a meeting with my French counterparts, and I'm thinking about how I can influence them, whether it be for my job or it be, again, I just want them to, I want you to accept me. And and I'm a country boy from the Midwest with country boy lifestyles. Mm -hmm. I want you to accept that. I want you to see the good things about that. I want to use influence in a positive direction every chance I get. So when we get this person from middle USA, Midwest USA, they don't have a hound organization. They may be intimidated to get involved. What are some things that they can do to start start becoming effective influencers? Well, I, I think the first thing you should accept is don't feel alone. You know, all of us, even the most outgoing extrovert you can think of at some point is intimidated. You're not the first to be intimidated. Don't let that stop you. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to start. Don't let that stop you. Start the journey. Take a step. Mm -hmm. And the next step's going to be easier. And you're going to learn. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to say, wow, I wish I hadn't have done that. You learned from it, didn't you? Right? So move on. Let's go to the next step. Seek out people, you know, like you're doing, you know, seek out people who've done it before. And, Mm -hmm. you know, what'd you do right? What'd you do wrong? How can you help us? Um, I wish I hadn't have done that. I can tell you a lot of things I wish I hadn't have done. Don't feel alone. But don't be intimidated. Start the journey. Take a step. Okay, here's here's what I'm I'm picturing happening. Um, You've got a person who's interested in starting this hound organization. There's no denying that whitetail hunting is king, you know, in on the hunting landscape. Uh, it's a multi-billion dollar business in the United States. Fish and wildlife agencies across the country uh, give it a lot of weight because it is a money maker. It's the cash cow. It is. And a person needs to go to a fish and wildlife meeting or... Uh, what do you tell that person that that guy that's that's pulling into the parking lot with his truck his dog box in the truck in the back uh, he's he's walking into this meeting for the first time he's heard all the horror stories bow hunters deer hunters hate coon hunters um, what do you tell that guy that that is saying I am going to do this because it's important it's important for the legacy of of, of this sport and, and to make sure that my lifestyle goes on. What do you tell that guy? I, I think the first thing you got to do is you got to build relationships. Okay. And I think that's the square one. Um, whether you're building a relationship, you know, like we talked earlier about the 
the coon hunters reaching across the aisle to the bow hunters and say, let's, let's sit down and talk. And so we, what we were doing, and we didn't know it at the time, we were building a relationship, right? You and I had a relationship going back years. Right, right. But the organizations and the average typical bow hunter and, and coon hunter didn't. They didn't have a relationship, but they had a relationship. It wasn't a positive one. Right. So we've got to build a relationship. We got to sit down and we got to talk about you know what what do we have in common what do we, you know and I think when we do that we're going to find that we've got a whole lot more in common than we do that we disagree on, mm-hmm. um, and I I find that across everything uh, I think if you know if we just do that today in our political worlds and sit down and talk about what do we have in common instead of what do we disagree about we're going to go on politics we're going to go we're going <laughs> to we're going to you know it's going to be a whole lot better world yeah I agree. But I think that's, you know, relationships is what it starts with. And, you know, see, so that I don't see you as a coon hunter. I see you as Chris, right? Mm-hmm. And when I walk to the county fair every year, I walk through the county fair, and my legislator will be over in the in the booth there, you know, and he'll look out and he'll see me walking down the aisle, and he'll stop and he'll walk out and come over and say, hey, Gene, how you been? Right. That's a relationship, right? As yep. a person, as a as a person, not as a coon hunter, not as a bow hunter, not as a deer hunter, but he knows you by name. He knows you by name, and you know him by name. But it's more important that he knows you by name. We're going to get to legislators, but that's a good example because that can be very intimidating um, for somebody who who doesn't even like driving in it, you know, downtown Indianapolis traffic, and to think that they've got to go to their legislator's office. Um, but sometimes that going to that legislative office is not the place to build that relationship anyway. No. You know, my you're too re- late if that's where you're doing it. Yeah. My representative lives in my community. I need to know where he lives. I need to know where he eats lunch. Mm-hmm. I need to make sure I'm there. I need to be able to sit down and talk to him. If it's just a brief introduction, hi, my name's yep. Chris. And uh, I I'd tell like you, to, you know, they, like they, talk they, to you sometime. that's what they want. Every legislator that I have had the experience of working with over the last 30 years, that's exactly what they want. Mm-hmm. They want to hear from you. They want to get to know you. That government of the people, by the people, for the people, that means they are us. We are them. You know, There's yeah. no line between us. They are citizens working in a legislative role. Right. And they want to hear from you. And even a big issue, a big contentious issue, if they get six or eight or ten letters on the biggest issue you can think of this year, they're thinking they're overwhelmed with public input. <laughs> you think they're getting a thousand or ten thousand letters and phone calls? They're not. They're getting six, eight, ten phone calls or letters on a big issue. So you as a houndsman or we as this or, you know, whatever the issue, the forest management's a big issue here in Indiana now. If we can get first, the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to get the forest management people, the people who, you know, consider themselves the old growth people and the people on on the other side, you know, like we don't have grouse today because we haven't managed our forests. We're going to sit down, we're going to, we're going to talk among ourselves as, you know, try to build relationships between us. And we're going to start to understand each other as people instead of enemies. And then we're going to be able to go to a legislator and we're going to be able to say, we, you know, look what we've done and we've worked together and we've got common understanding on this and we disagree on that. But uh, legislators respect that. Right. The other thing they want is they want you to come in and they want genuinely, they really, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not making this any more, 
any less than it really is. They want to hear from you. So why are you intimidated? Look them in the eye as a person. They're a citizen just like you are. They have a job just like you do when they're not in the legislature. Mm-hmm. How you doing? You know, Bob Garton was our senator here in Columbus. Bob Garton happened to be the president of the Indiana Senate. Right. Other than the governor, the most powerful person in the state of Indiana. <clears throat> I could call Bob Garton anytime, and Bob would take my call, and Bob would say, come on in, let's talk. That's building a relationship there that, you know, he respected me. He knew that I knew what I was talking about. He knew that I wouldn't feed him a line. Um, that's that's what you're looking to do. You know, build that relationship with your representative. Know who they are, but more important, they know who you are. Exactly. Exactly. So tell me, let's circle back because we've got, we've got this person who wants to get, they want to bring these core of, uh, leaders around them. They want to be able to communicate effectively. What are some things, real world things that they can do? What tor- sort of attitude should they have if, if there was no Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance and I reached out and said, hey, you know, there's some guys that run dogs that would like to be uh, part of, of the Indiana Sportsman's Roundtable. What sort of things as a new member or not very well um, – um, I'm not very familiar with the players in the room. What are some things, what attitude should I bring to that first meeting? Yeah, I'll, I'll go back to the relationships again. I do this <clears throat> in every part of my life, whether it be my volunteer life or my professional life. The first thing I want to do when I walk into a room is I want to sit down and talk to you as a person. I want to break the ice. When I teach a class, a bow hunter education class, the first thing I do in the class is I do icebreaker activities. I break the ice, not just for the students, but for me, mm-hmm. so that I'm not intimidated. Believe it or not, when I stand up in front of a crowd, even though I've been doing this for 30 years, I, I get nervous. You know, I give presentations, you know, in my professional life to a thousand people sitting in the audience. I get nervous. I teach a bow hunter education class of 15 people. I get nervous. Right. It's just the way people are, you know. You're going to get nervous. But don't get intimidated. So to get over the intimidation, what I'll do is I'll sit down and talk to you as a person first. I'll break the ice. Let's talk about, you know, how was the the ball game or, you know, did you watch the race or, you know, just talk. Just Mm -hmm. like you and I would if, you know, we had met for the first time at at a friend's party. You know, you're trying to get to know each other as people. Right. Okay, I want to break the ice with you. I want to build some kind of a bond with you first. Now let's go to business. Now Mm -hmm. we can sit down and we can talk about you know, what do we want to do? What are we trying to do? How are we going to do it? But yeah. I think, when you know, when you walk into us as the Indiana Sportsman's Roundtable and you sit down and say, we've got this new organization we're starting um, and we think we want to be a part. Um, okay, the first thing we're going to do is get to know each other. Yeah. Yeah. What are some things that you have seen over the years that were a disaster? <clears throat> My way or the highway? Mm-hmm. I'm not listening to you. We had, uh, it's almost embarrassing, in, you know, in Indiana two, three years ago, the, there was such a fight. It's the only word, I mean, it's the only word, fight, on the Internet and some of these bulletin boards and Facebook and groups and things, you know, between people who thought the deer herd was not being managed correctly and people who thought that, you know, 
that uh, yeah, it's not so bad after all. I mean, they were violent mm-hmm. with each other, name-calling to the point where it's embarrassing. Really? You know, this this has got to... You're never going to get anywhere with that kind of an attitude. You're never going to be able to come to a compromise or come to an agreement or an understanding with that kind of an attitude. So we need to sit down, you know, and that's what I did with those groups. And I said, you know, we need to get together. Let's and I go. watched it. I, yeah. saw, I saw you doing it. We're we're gonna we're gonna have a you know we're gonna have a roundtable meeting, and I want you guys to come, and I want you to sit around the wall, not as members, because you're not a member yet. But I want you to sit around the wall as visitors, and I want you to see what we're doing, and I want you to understand what we're doing. And then after this meeting, you and me and your group, we're gonna go out afterwards. We're gonna have a root beer and a hamburger, and we're, <laughs> we're gonna talk. Right. And I, it took six months, a year. But those people are now some of the best, most active, productive people we have in the roundtable. And it was just that ability to be able to sit down and listen to each other instead mm-hmm. of, you know, talking to each other instead of at each other. Right. Right. So what I'm hearing is, you know, loading up our pickup trucks and putting on our hound organization t-shirt and storm in the state house probably isn't a good icebreaker i I would call that no (laughs) i would call that a you know the nuclear option or the last resort right yeah um if you got to that point you failed previously so have you are you right now we're in indiana every state's going to be different at the state level but at the state level your legislature meets for a part of the year in Indiana, we have what we call the Citizens Legislature, and every other year we have long session, short session. We happen to be in a short session this year, so there's only you know 90 days of legislative meetings. The rest of the year, though, those legislators are out meeting with the public. They're having summer study meetings. They're doing all the research that they need to do to get ready for those quick 90-day sessions where all the bills are introduced and have to be heard and have to be passed. Mm -hmm. If you think you're going to be in there during that session getting something done, you're wrong. You need to start before, you need to start as soon as this session ends, you're starting for next session. Okay, so what I'm hearing is if you're going to be a successful organization, you need somebody dedicated to tracking what's coming out of legislation and what's going to be happening in the next legislative session. You need to have if if you're starting if you're starting today, you know, our legislative session here in Indiana will be over around the 1st of April. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're starting today, then you should be tracking what's going on. You should be educated on the issues that are going to affect yeah, so I'm going to I'm going to take a little different approach. I'm going to say right now, let's forget this session. It's already too late mm-hmm. in this session right now. Bills have already switched house. Um, all the testimony's been heard, and probably all the votes have already been aligned. Let's talk April first. This session's going to end March thirty first. Mm-hmm. April first, session's over. The governor has released the legislature. The gavels have been sounded, and now that's when your work starts. April 1st is when your work starts. Mm -hmm. You're getting your people together, and you're saying, okay, don't think just legislatively either. There's legislature who makes law, and there's DNR who makes policy. And here in Indiana, it's the Natural Resources Commission who makes the policy 
which the DNR follows. Mm -hmm. The legislature years ago delegated through a law to the Natural Resources Commission and to the Department of Natural Resources the ability to create policy, to set season lengths, bag limits. Those things are not done legislatively. They're not done by law. They're done by policy. And so, the legislature gave the DNR the legislative authority. Right. They delegated manage, that authority. Yes. Through, by, by legislation saying right. you One time are, years ago. Yes. So, and that leads us into this, this, ta- this, this idea of we've got to be educated on. You've got to know how the system works. We've got to know how the system works. We've got to know why the system works, you know. Houndsman XP has, we've done things, we've talked about things like the North American Model for Wildlife Conservation. We need to know what that is so that mm-hmm. so that we can formulate plans and make sure that we're operating within. Yeah, you got you know, model. you got to have your strategy and your visions, but you got to know how I'm going to make that vision come to reality. You know, so I'll pick an example. We want a bobcat season here in Indiana. We yes, want a bobcat yes, season. Yes, we do. Really bad. Really right? bad. And blame it on us as sportsmen that we didn't mm-hmm. get it. With another story. Yeah, let's talk about that real quick. <laughs> okay, well, th- it was actually introduced to the rulemaking process um, two rule- two years ago, three years ago, that uh, we were going to open up the southern part of the state, certain counties for a bobcat season, hunting and trapping. And only certain counties were going to be open, which had a viable population of bobcats. wouldn't be every county in the state. And it would be a quota. So once X number of bobcat had been killed in the state, the season's over. So it was a very well thought out, very scientifically based proposal through the Natural Resources Commission that made it through got preliminary adoption. This is back to what you were saying. You've got to understand the process. Yes. So when, when a rule gets introduced, it gets studied and then preliminarily adopted by the NRC, and then it goes out for public input. Public Preliminary adoption doesn't mean it's now a, right. it's done. It means let's take it to public input. Mm-hmm. And then there's about, you know, there's a year, maybe a year and a half's worth of public input opportunity for people to come back pro or con. And at the end of that, then they'll make the final recommendation to adopt or not. Mm-hmm. And the bobcat, we took it for granted because just a few years before that, we got the otter through. Right. And the otter was like, you know, nothing. It was just smooth sailing all the way through. Nobody opposed it. It wasn't a big deal. Same thing's going to happen with the bobcat. We went to sleep. The other side didn't go to sleep. The other side showed up. They showed up. And all the, you know, the ladies from Carmel, wealthy socialites showed up at the meetings. And if we had just shown up to the meetings. What was it, 10 to 1? Was that the rough numbers? Rough numbers. 10 against 1-4. And that's only because we didn't show up. Right. If we would have shown up and wrote our letters... If we would have showed up and made our phone calls, if we would have just had 20 of us go to the meetings and speak for it, mm-hmm. DNR wanted it. Right. Everybody wanted it. But politically, it couldn't. They beat us. Yeah. 
So that goes to an important point here. We've said it. We've said it on this podcast before. Hunters have got to come out of the woods. They've got to come off the mountain. They've got to understand how this process works, and they've got to show up. You got to show up. Back to the involvement. We all want to be. We all want to be in the cathedral. Yeah. You know, with 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 our hound or with our with our bow we all want to do that we all want to hunt but we have to be willing to show up we've got to we've got to come off the mountain and be involved understand what that process is educate ourselves on it and learn how to be effective within it yeah yeah we all want to you know i wish i didn't have to do what i do i wish all i had to do was go hunting and fishing exactly i wish i could call chris and say hey chris you promised me a squirrel hunt let's go I want to, you know, I love to bow hunt squirrels over dogs. I love to coon hunt with a bow and arrow. Yeah. <clears throat> Chris, you promised you'd take me. You haven't done that yet. I <laughs> wish that's all we had to do. I think I think I'm getting called out. <laughs> I wish that's all we had to do, but that's that. Those days are over. You know, right. the fat, dumb, and happy days are over, guys. If we don't get involved, um, if you don't get out there, you know, if you don't have somebody leading you, if you don't have somebody telling you when the meetings are where the meetings are, or when to write the letter, who to send the letter to, and then you do it. Yeah. We're going to lose, just like we did the Bobcat. That one was so easy. It was in our hands. Yeah. It slipped right through our fingers. We went to sleep. And, you know, Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance did the same thing. We got – and we talked about this. We've talked about this before, but – in the 1920s, sportsmen knew something had to be done. So – the Pittman-Robertson Act mm-hmm. had 75% support. Uh, and and some since this is an educational program, the Pittman-Robertson Act is uh, a, was an act that became a law that puts a special tax, built-in tax, on firearms, ammo, and archery equipment. Yep, a federal. It's a federal-level deal. And for every hunting license that is sold – in a state, then the state gets reimbursed so much money per license they sell. That goes into habitat. So that's right. what Pittman-Robertson is. And the reason I bring up PR, it's commonly referred to as PR, is because in those days, sportsmen realized that there was a crisis, mm-hmm. and it had 75%. First time in history, and probably the only time in history, that the people went to the government and said, tax, tax me. Us. Yes, and and we want you to tax me. Right. We we please. So and that's our wildlife. Yeah. We've been. That that's why we have what we have today. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's time that that we've got to understand as a community why we have what we have, and understand that it is ours, and we got to figure out how to hang on to it and and use it for what it was in its intended purposes, and for that was wildlife management. So. The, the play the, where I was going with that is um, people have to understand how the system works. Yeah, <clears throat> if, and that's you know you guys as the houndsman, you need to know what you want. What are you? What is your goal? What is my vision? Mm-hmm. And then you know how the system works, and you can use that to your advantage to get what you want. If right. you if you don't have those two things going for you, if you don't have a clear vision, what am I trying to do? If all you want to do is have some competitions, knock yourself out, guys. But even that could go away, right? If you right. don't get involved, 
and and one of the things that that I found very useful was not just being concerned about what my needs were, but if we're going to have a relationship as you as a bow hunter and me as a houndsman, if we're going to have this relationship, I need to know what your needs are. Yeah. And I need to show up. You on scratch those days. mine back, and I'll scratch yours. Absolutely, I show up on those days yeah. when there's an issue about about uh, deer management yep. coming up. And I, I make my presence known. And then those days when I need you to show up, you're going to be there for you me. count on it. Yeah. And that's, that's you know, as we as bow hunters and you as houndsmen are very similar in that we, numbers-wise, we're at the bottom, right? There's a whole lot more firearms hunters out there than we are. Right. So it, we've got we've to work harder. You know, relevancy is important so you as trappers houndsmen bow hunters your numbers aren't as nearly as big as the the deer hunters with a farm nope so you're gonna have to be smarter you're gonna have to work harder you're gonna have to have more vision more strategy more execution if you're gonna survive but it can be done let's 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 plant that seed of hope i know it can be done it can be done absolutely and and the relationship that you and i've had over the years has proven that it can be done you know uh herb higgins depends on the hoosier tree dog alliance for a banquet item every year at the indiana bow hunters association mm-hmm. banquet i don't i've not been uh directly involved with the banquet stuff so i don't know how that reciprocal agreement has been going but i know at one time the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance could depend on a banquet item from the Indiana Bowhunters Association. Yep. yep. And we worked together, and we we knew that that was effective <clears throat> for and and a success for both organizations. And if I have an issue that I need to call to action people to go to a DNR or an NRC meeting or a legislative hearing, and it has nothing to do with the houndsman, I'm still going to call you. And you're still going to go. And yes. you have, right? Yes. And it could be an issue about fly fishing. It could be an issue about something that has nothing to do with what you do, but we're all together. The days of being exclusive, elitist, um, uh, those days have got to be over. You know, it's <clears throat> it's time for all hands on deck if we're going to hang on to this lifestyle that mm-hmm. we have. And it's time to... Put those egos aside and put on that face of humility, reach across the aisle and start coordinating yep. our efforts to save a hunting lifestyle. Not a bow hunting lifestyle, not a deer hunting, not a duck hunting, not a coon hunting, houndsman, whatever it is. It's a hunting lifestyle. And and as I look around this room, I see animals in here that I know were harvested with use of hounds. And obviously, I owe you a coon hunt and a squirrel hunt. <laughs> Not that I'm going to let you forget that. Exactly. And and we'll make that happen for sure. And we better get that done because it's not exactly uh, 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 every day's a gift. So we uh, we need to make that happen. Gene, what's your prediction on the future of hunting? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to interrupt Gene actually bring that up myself. A lot of what we've talked about sounds almost you know like gloom and doom or negative. It's not negative at all. Hunting right now has got more support out there in the general non-hunting public than probably it's had in my lifetime. If you go out and just 
talk to the normal person on the street, do you support the hunting of, of a game animal almost that's uh, numbers I've seen approach 80% of the people will say yes, as long as you're doing it within the law. And as long as you're, you know, especially if you're eating the meat or, you know, you're mm-hmm. just not just going out and throwing it in the, in the ditch somewhere. Right. Um, fully eight out of 10 people support what we do. So we're doing, we've done a lot of good things in the last 20, 30 years, because I can tell you in the 1970s, it wasn't that way. Right. You know, you were still young, but you know, the 1974, I think it was the days of, uh, the days of autumn or the, the TV show that CBS came out. It was a really bad anti-hunting show. Hmm. And the, the, the pendulum was really swinging the other direction. You know, that our days were numbered. It's not that way today. We've done a really good job over the last 20, 30 years in telling our story and getting the general public, the non-hunting public, to, to understand us. Even if you don't choose to join us, they understand us and they're willing to support us as long as we're doing everything legally and and on the up and up. And for the purposes of, of managing yeah. a, a, yeah. a resource. Right. You know, it's got to be... There's got to be a benefit. There's got to be a need for it. And I I couldn't agree more. Like I said, I attended the SHOT show. I was really uh, encouraged by the the crowd that was there. Um, And I've been one that's been like, oh, doom and gloom. It's all coming to an end. What are we going to do? How are we going to overcome this? We just need to do what we've been doing, only we need to do it better. I'm more optimistic now than I've been probably in my entire career of doing this because mm-hmm. I've seen the successes that people have made across the country at different levels. So keep on doing what we're doing, get better, get smarter, um, get more of us, you know, we're, yeah. we're doing yeah. the right things. Yep. And I'll we'll kind of wrap this up here. A couple of things I want to talk about before we go is I want to reiterate the fact that the people who are trying to stop hunting are operating on a long range plan. It's not something that they're pulling out of their hat today and running out and trying it, you know, and and being effective with it tomorrow. You know, when you see a ballot, uh, a push for a ballot initiative in Arizona by the HSUS to stop mountain lion hunting, they didn't put very much money in that. It was a test ground. Mm-hmm. All they were doing was floating that idea out there to see what mm-hmm. kind of traction they could get. It's going to come back. Mm-hmm. They're going to go back to the drawing board. They're going to spend a little bit of money. They're going to see what, what kind of effect they had. Yep. And if it's viable, then they're going to put more money behind it. And They'll come chip away, chip away, chip away until they find the right crack to come in. Yep, yep. So that's why it's important for houndsmen today to start developing this vision. Learn how to be effective, educate yourself on the issues, and start building those relationships. You you said it. I couldn't say it any better. If you wait until the wolf's at the door, you're too late. Get out there right now and start making those relationships with the legislature. Start making those relationships within the DNR, within whatever your state calls their Natural Resources Commission, but also with your friends and your coworkers because they're voters. 
and we don't have referendums in the state of Indiana, but a lot of states do. Yeah. And they, if if your state has referendums where the general public gets to go vote on whether you get to chase black bears or cougars with a lion or with a dog in the future, you could very well lose that if you're not out there working with the general public because they're going to be the ones voting on it. That's right. how Washington, that's how the state of Washington and the uh, state of Oregon lost their hound hunting yes. for cougars and bears referendum. Mm-hmm. And they won't, the other side's not going to play fair. I'll tell you right now, they're going to, they're going to tell, they're going to say things and do things that you look at them and you say you're lying and they'll look at you and they'll say, you're absolutely right, but it doesn't matter. Right. So you get out willing there. to do. They'll do whatever it takes. I've said it before. I know those people sit around and read Sun Tzu, the art of war, you know, and they implement those concepts right into the way they fight every day. The art of deception, you know, the whole nine yards. We've got to, you got to stop treating the game more than like he's, and this is easy for me to say, but uh, being a retired conservation officer, you got to stop treating the game more than like a boogeyman. And you got to, you got, that's a good relationship to start building right there. Yeah. Well, I went to a, um, a wildlife biologist conference a long time ago. It was while, it was right after Washington and Oregon lost their hound hunting. <clears throat> I went to a wildlife biologist conference and believe it or not, the, one of the keynote speakers was one of the leaders of one of the biggest animal rights groups in the country. And he got up and he showed a video clip that was a television commercial it was a 30-second television commercial, and the television commercial started off with this little black bear cub playing in the meadow. The birds are singing. The sun is shining. The flowers are blooming. And then off in the background, you start to hear a hound. And then the hound gets louder, and the little black bear cub gets, you know, a little tense. And then the hounds get louder, and the black bear cub climbs the tree. And the hounds get louder, and then you hear a shot. And that's the television commercial. Mm-hmm. And he showed that, and he, at least I'll give him credit, he had the honesty to say, I know that's not the way it worked, guys. I know that's not an honest commercial, but it doesn't matter. We won. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd say that we need to get out there and get to work and figuring out ways that we can win. And I think we've got a pretty good blueprint for – our listeners to take back. And of course, you know, this is the production side of it. Um, Our listeners have to be engaged in Houndsman XP. You have to reach out to us just like happened this past week. You know, three different people from three different states say, we want to start an organization. We want to be more effective. How do we do it? And that led to this conversation we're having now. So it's so important that our listeners reach out and tell us what what they need. You know, people like you are willing to sit down and help. Absolutely. I've, I've taught Hunter Ed, Bo Hunter Ed in 17 different states now. Um, if somebody in some state somewhere has a question, I don't care. You know, get a hold of Chris. Get a hold of me. Let's work together. We're all in this together. Because you hunt all over. I hunt all over. I've yeah. hunted so many states and provinces now I can't even count. So if I haven't hunted your state yet, I probably will. Right. So I'm more than happy to, to give any any kind of advice that I can give. You know, if if I think I can help, if you think I can help, then let's reach out. Let's work together, all of us. I agree. I agree. Well, you got any uh, 
You got any closing stories you want to tell on me before? <laughs> uh, I, I would I would like to say, yeah, that Chris and I have known each other for a long time, but <clears throat> my wife has actually known Chris a lot longer than I have. <laughs> and uh, my wife, when Chris came tonight, uh, we went in and, and, and just chatted with the wife for a little bit, and she reminded him that she used to babysit for him when he was really young. <laughs> And uh, I don't know how far you want to go into that story. (laughs) I don't remember sleeping naked. She says you like to sleep naked. And (laughs) as a babysitter, she found that quite embarrassing. (laughs) Uh, I don't know that that's changed. (laughs) I don't know. I've talked to your wife. (laughs) Uh, Well, that's the cool thing about having a, relationship i i can't tell you enough how much i've appreciated your friendship over the years gene and and uh even when i was a snot-nosed kid coming into the archery shop and i know you were standing there behind the counters thinking put that down you can't pay for that you know you, you didn't run me out of the shop um it was a culture that that uh that was very important in my formative years and and uh yeah, a lot of that went on to translate into what I chose to do as a profession for for uh, 28 years as a conservation officer, you know, being involved with the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance. So whether you knew it or not, you had a huge influence on me, and uh, uh, I paid attention to a lot of the things you did and, and the way you were effective. Well, I tell you, I really appreciate that coming from you because I can tell you I respect you tremendously for what you've done. Um, you have done a lot of influencing yourself. And through your family, I I look at your family, and I think you've got such a tremendous family. Um, The things you've done through the law enforcement division within the the Fish and Wildlife, um, the things you've done with the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance, you've really set a good example for others. So to hear you say those good things about me, I'll sleep well tonight. Oh, I will too. And uh, as Steve Fielder would say, if he were here, it sounds like a mutual admiration society. <laughs> but, but I know you mean it, and you know that I mean it. Absolutely. So I appreciate your time, Gene. We'll look for that uh, that bow hunt for squirrels. Well, when that happens, I'm going to hand you a dog leash. It's going to have a dog on the end of it. You follow your hound, and I'll follow mine. <laughs>